Hi, this is Scott Burns. And this is Tony Burns coming to you from the Crooked Little House in Deadwood, South Dakota. Deadwood, South Dakota. Yes. Where, where the colors have finally faded in the Black Hills. And yes. Everything's a wonderful uniform, evergreen and white. Yes, yes. <laughs> Chlorophyll breakdown season is now complete. Chlorophyll what? Chlorophyll breakdown season. I thought you, I was thinking you said chlorophyll breakout when, <laughs> when all the little plants get acne. What? No, it's otherwise <laughs> known as that? fall. That's what causes oh. trees to turn color. Okay. Because when the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to my just science go with teaching a, this is science when the leaves, <laughs> When the season changes and the leaves mm-hmm. no longer produce food for the tree, yes. the pigment, which is yes. chlorophyll, right. fades. And yes. The, the pigment's carrot, what is it, uh, carotene, the, the same Well, you thing. can get those out of uh, sweet potatoes. <laughs> you can, and carrots, too. Yes, which and carrots. do not carotene. grow on trees. <laughs> 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 no, carotenes and xanthophyll are the pigments that the yellow and okay. oranges, okay. And, and it's the different combinations mm-hmm. that make determine what color the leaves Turn. Okay, so just, when you break like in, down, you turn orange. Right. Or red. <laughs> yeah, there's a famous person that's done that, but we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, the same thing, it, it, it's like in people's skin, the melanin. The, actually, melanin is an overarching term for three different pigments in skin that determine oh. skin color. Okay. Yeah, but trees never argue over this stuff. <laughs> That's because they don't understand it any better than I do. (laughs) But for some reason, people do. The the combinations of melanin in your skin and what determines, you know, racial tones Mm -hmm. and skin colors has become... And whether you have chlorophyll. (laughs) Right. But all this sort of ties into this week's theme. I'm waiting for that. (laughs) Well, color is part of the episode theme as well. Because this episode, Mm -hmm. we're diving into mixed relationships. Correct. And I use that term specifically because it's not just interracial relationships. Of course, we've covered the interracial aspect mm-hmm. of the lovings, which are going to be part of this week's nice. Love in America as well, Richard nice. Mildred Loving. Yep. But also cultural differences yes. between, you know, we covered Irving and Ellen Berlin. Right. Or uh, you covered Harry and Bess Houdini. Right. You know, mixed. Catholic mixed, and Jewish. Right. Good heavens. <laughs> in a time when that was not normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did interview a couple on the road that was uh, background Mormon and Wiccan. Yeah, that's and true. That's, that's, that's very a true. Definite. <laughs> and, you know, we, we laugh about it, but those kinds of mm-hmm. mixed relationship yes. stresses are still, when you look at couples that are mixed today between mm-hmm. Muslim and non-Muslim. Right. Those people are still experiencing the same kinds of prejudices yes. that had existed before. Did you know we had an absolutely groundbreaking couple here in South Dakota that had fought against anti-miscegenation laws here in South Dakota? I did not know that. Yeah, their names were um, Rupert (laughs) and Dee Nelson. Okay. uh, Who uh, He was a a farm kid from Del Rapids out by Sioux Falls. Mm -hmm. And she was, uh, or still is, they live out in California now. Okay. And and I don't know if they're still around, but if they are, this will be their 62nd wedding anniversary this year. Oh, awesome. Dee Cop was Hawaiian Chinese. Okay. And unfortunately, South Dakota, of course, had anti-miscegenation right. laws in place mm-hmm. that dated back to 1909. Right. And prohibited marriage between whites and blacks. Right. And then in the enlightened state of 1913, they expanded that to include African, Korean, Malayan, and Mongolian. And that wasn't enough, so they later added Asian. Okay. Coincidentally, South Dakota never had a law barring marriage between Native Americans and whites. I was just going to ask that. I was just going to ask. So, that. so, but Dee and Rupert, 
didn't want to have anything to do with that. And in typical right. South Dakota fashion, they'll fight if they have to, but it's more important just to find a way to get it done. Right. And so, <laughs> since they couldn't do it in South Dakota, they couldn't do it. They couldn't get married in North Dakota because they weren't residents. Okay. They went to Minnesota. All right. Uh, who never passed any miscegenation laws. And, or had residency requirements. You could oh. get married if you wanted to there. I have to add, before we think Minnesota was on the cutting edge of liberal politics uh -huh. in the 19, early 1900s, uh -huh. they did have laws in place for voting for Native Americans that they could vote as long as they renounced all tribal affiliations. Oh my God, yeah. okay. Not, a, not so much forward thinking. Uh, just... give, a, give up your culture, you can vote. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully we're doing better these days. Yeah. But um, I, I don't want to go through their whole story because I want to save that for Rupert's own words because okay. he actually wrote a book Ooh. about now this is a kid that grew up in depression era south right. dakota served in the korean war he worked as an agricultural extension agent on the fort peck reservation mm -hmm. fascinating life they worked as uh, uh, missionaries for the american baptist church in thailand raised uh, two daughters one of whom was an adopted lakota oh. girl and they wrote a book about their lives and experiences called like the rings of a tree oh i like that <laughs> i like the title yeah rupert actually seems like a guy you'd love to get to know he um recently said he worries today more about cultural differences than racial differences right. in marriage and said about he and Dee said we were both Americans so there was no adjustment problem. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll put a link to that book up on the website and those the subject of the anti-miscegenation laws are mm -hmm. going to become part of this week's episode oh, because nice. our stories are going to cover first of all a couple that we interviewed in Woodstock, Woodstock New, York. New York that's got to be uh, Rico and Cinderella R Rico and Cinderella or Shrek and Cinderella, <laughs> Shrek and Cinderella. <laughs> which was an interesting mix yes they, they Rico is has a as an African American with mm -hmm. a background in amateur boxing yes and uh, Cinderella is a Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican. dancer mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> Yep. And w so we're going to move from that into an equally <laughs> fascinating tale and, and somebody that interracial and mixed relationships owe a great debt these days. You've got to be talking uh, about the Lovings. Richard and Mildred Loving. Yes. Uh, which is an important story to hear. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're fortunate to have some clips of their act, of their voices from right, the time. Right. And then Tony has a narrative this week. Yes, I do. It is the night I survived dinner with his parents, <laughs> which, <laughs> <laughs> which I think that could be across all cultures and yep. all relationships <laughs> maybe there'll be some important points and tips coming on that one coming up on love in america love in america is brought to you by you, you. <laughs> ours is a shared labor of love existing through the support of patrons like you you can help keep the love strong and these podcasts coming through supporting love in america on patreon that would be www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash loveinamerica. For as little as a dollar a month, or up to 20 if you're feeling very generous and loving, you can be a patron of love. You could be a de Medici of hope. De Medici? Uh-huh. Patrons. <laughs> I like it. But what a great way to say I love you to love. And we love you too. Thanks for the support. <laughs> In uh, 2017, we rode the Northeast. Yes, we did. And up through uh, upstate New York. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Oh, my oh, gosh. Wow. <laughs> Including the uh, Hudson River Valley. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Up from Poughkeepsie. Yep. And into the Woodstock area, mm-hmm. which is an area of New York we'd not been to before. And yes, it's that Woodstock. It is that Woodstock. <laughs> yes, indeed. Wonderful <laughs> collection of just about every different kind of free range hippie business you can Absolutely. possibly have <laughs> in Woodstock. And we uh, spent some time at the Buddhist monastery up yep. on the hill and got which some interviews from that, which will be in a subsequent uh, show. Yep. We stopped at the library, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which was closed, um, but we stopped at the, I can't remember, oh, I think it's, we were looking to park, but a guy in a, what was it, like a convertible, a sports car or something, there was a pretty young lady sitting next to him, and uh-huh. this guy was our age, and he had some sort of sports car. Oh. That's why. Midlife, midlife crisis, crisis mobile. mobile. That's <laughs> why I remembered the car. Pulled, pulled up next to us with his, and he had, I think he had either jersey or New York plates yep. on, and yep. looked at the plates on the back of the bikes, and looked at us and, <laughs> and he said and he looked at tony and says south dakota would y'all take a wrong turn somewhere <laughs> pretty funny no we took all the right turns yep. to to get to this woodstock is exactly where we had planned to be <laughs> and as we're walking down the street in between tofu restaurants yep. and free-range veterinary care and the classic tie-dyed banners and you know and flutes two of, and, and two of the tie-dyes that we walked by yes. were, were wrapped around yes rico and cinderella <laughs> so rico had a, a background in amateur boxing and is a, is an all-american guy yes he is and indeed. cinderella is actually from puerto rico puerto rico yep and she's just striking um but they but they're both an older couple i would say they were easily in their mid 50s ish mm-hmm. and i wouldn't have guessed that except for the white hair in Cinderella's beautiful well, curly hair. Not from Rico. <laughs> not from Rico. Rico had some sort of, um, it, it's an actual disorder mm-hmm. where he can't grow hair. Right. He's been bald his whole life. He's been bald his entire life. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I keep thinking about Cinderella but, talking about, about her mud man. I like, this is my mud man. He's made out of mud. I made him. For me, like I was, when I was a little girl, I made him in my hair. You know, I made him, he was dark-skinned, I was in Puerto Rico, and I just wanted this bald guy to catch me, dark-skinned, mud color. And that's when I saw him, I was like, oh my God, that's him. You know, like, that's my mud man. That's what she told her, her friend that, that day that she first saw me. And then, and then um, she said, you don't even know what she, she right. You don't even know what he looks like. And I was like, he could look like Shrek. I know, I was mad. Yep. And then I turned around and, around and I, I was Shrek. Shrek. Oh my God! It was like, yes. yes. Oh. <laughs> That's my Shrek. <laughs> they, they're not really in control kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> Which, well, they can tend to let things be free right. and kind of happen as they happen. Right. And, and that was reflected in the way that they answered our question on whether or not they believed love is a choice. Yes. Do you think love is a choice or do you think it happens outside of your will? Yes, it happens outside. Yeah, you can't control it. You can't control your heart. It is like, you can't. I mean, it's like, no, 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 no. But that heart is telling you, feed me. Like, feed me, Seymour. <laughs> and I gotta also make one mention because uh-huh. of the other questions that we ask. One of the the ones that is usually the lighthearted question is about the best love song. What do you think is the greatest love song ever written? And I think 
this was Rico's response yeah. was the only time this tune's ever come up. Ever. Ben. Michael Jackson, Ben, uh-huh. from the movie Ben. <laughs> that was a love yes, thing. Yes, he yes. loved it, that rap. <laughs> but the song itself, you know, if you take the rap out of it, then, you know, it's, it's a beautiful love song. <laughs> but the last thing that she said that I really liked was the way that she did describe um, life after death, when love continues on. You get to meet everybody that you love. We all want. Even when we're alive, you feel them. I mean, you feel the smell, there's a memory, there's all of a sudden a song and the name comes out. I know there's no dead, you know, that's here. If you know that someone you love is around you because you can feel the smell. And I thought, oh, that is such, it's such a unique and different way of looking at that. Whereas Rico had a little more <laughs> concrete idea of some of the dynamics that might be involved in the afterlife of love. I mean, I like to think that because, you know, I lost a few uh, family members in the last couple of years, so I'm hoping that they reunited out there and stuff like that. So in terms of love, hopefully that's the way it goes. Uh, with the one that I guess that you found true love with here. Yeah. Cause I don't think you want to bump into your exes up there and stuff like that. <laughs> you have a lot of hell to pay there. <laughs> Luckily, Cinderella's totally understanding. Yes, yeah, she is. She is. And she laughs a lot. Yep. Every time he says stuff, she's just laughing. She's just burning with that tr- twin flame, baby. <laughs> with that twin flame, <laughs> so, baby. So it was, a gr- it was a wonderful experience to have yes. a few minutes to spend with Rico and Cinderella on the streets of Woodstock, New York. Yep. And if you get a chance to go through Woodstock and you see a, a late middle-aged... Very colorful. Tie-dyed Shrek. Yep, with a beautiful princess on his at his side. You'll, you'll say hi to Rico and Cinderella for us. <laughs> so that's a little love from uh, Woodstock, New York. And speaking of love, a couple whose name says it all. Richard and Mildred Loving. Coming up next on... Love in America. <laughs> if you're loving what you're hearing on Love in America, nearly as much as we're loving here and that you're loving what you're hearing on Love in America. It's, it's lovely to be loving, loving people. It's nice to be nice to the nice. <laughs> you're probably hoping there's something else you can do. Is there? To spread the love. Is there? There is. Leave us a review with your preferred podcast provider, oh, iTunes, yes. uh, Stitcher, TuneIn. Google Play. <laughs> all the above. And let them know what you think. Yes, please. And how much you love us. Oh, yeah, especially that part. And how much we love you. (laughs) Well, we can add that. (laughs) (laughs) And we will. Thanks for listening. Our love story this week, you know, the last the last several times we've done this, we've covered either political stories yep. or Hollywood or stories. Or Hollywood, that seems Which to are be wonderful. Our, yep. And, you know, it's interesting because it's people that everybody knows. Right. Um, but I thought we'd take a little different tack this time and choose a couple who would have preferred to have remained out of the spotlight. Really? They were very, pri- actually very private, very simple people. Uh-huh. And uh, if you've ever looked at a, a calendar and you've seen all those holidays and 
you go, what is that? <laughs> I've never heard of that. You know, like Boxing Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, there's all those obscure holidays right. on there. And once in a while, you'll see one that says Loving Day. Okay. It's actually June 12th. Oh. And I'll give you a little background on where that comes from. And next time Loving Day comes around, maybe you'd like to observe it. I like Loving Day. It was. It was actually named after Richard and Mildred Loving. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, who were reluctant, I will call them <laughs> reluctant champions of love. Richard Loving was born um, October 29th, 1933, in a place called Central Point, Virginia. Richard had a passion for drag racing and souped-up engines. He won a few prizes, earned nice. his living, actually earned his living as a brick mason and a construction worker. Uh-huh. Um, considering how he looked, though, Richard had a, a platinum blonde crew cut, a backwoods Virginia accent, and he was pretty taciturn by nature. What do you mean by taciturn? Uh, quiet to the point where people think he's kind of standoffish. If you if you looked at him, considering where he was from and the period of you know of the time, you he looks more like a caricature of a white supremacist, <laughs> <laughs> rather than the civil rights pioneer that he would actually really? end up becoming. Really? Uh, fortunately for Richard, folks in Caroline County, where Central Point was, had a long interracial history. Nice. Uh, and that shaped Richard's idea of you know his personal connections, his friendship. His father worked for one of the wealthiest black men in the county for over 25 years. What state was this again? Uh, it was Virginia. Virginia. Okay. And Carolyn County was less than 50% white, so, mm -hmm. you know, it was the area that and the culture in which he grew. Uh -huh. So all of his friends were black, mm -hmm. including all of his drag racing partners, some of whom had a little sister named Mildred. She was okay. also born in Central Point. As a girl, she was so skinny, they called her String Bean. <laughs> Richard shortened that to Bean, which is Bean. what he called her for the rest of their lives. Aww. Uh, even though she was shy, she was more outgoing with, than him. Right. Throughout the rest of their <laughs> history together, she would do most of the talking. Interestingly, That sounds as, like as, somebody else we know, too. <laughs> it does. We find all these parallels in life. Uh, digging through it a little bit, it was interesting to me to find out that there's some conjecture over whether or not she was black and how black she was. Oh, gosh. Because she was, you know, I don't know why we have to measure I these know, things. I know, I know. But um, most of the histories list her as being mixed African-American and Native American, specifically Cherokee and Rappahannock. But she told a writer in 2004, um, and this was a quote from a rare interview that she gave. She said, I'm not black. I have no black ancestry. I'm Indian Rappahannock. I told the people so when they came to arrest me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. she looked black and right. you know in the 1950s south the, uh, Virginia had actually limited the Indian designations to people that were actually specifically living on the reservation uh, the two oldest reservations in the united states in virginia but those designations were reserved to keep people from getting around what were known as the anti-miscegenation laws and what does that mean no race mixing oh it was illegal for people of different races to marry one another the the official designations were limited to white or colored so if you weren't white, you were colored. And, and if you were colored, you could just marry what anybody. Mildred had to say. Oh my gosh. So Mildred went to an all-colored school. So Richard didn't actually meet her until he was 17. She was 11. He was mm -hmm. visiting her house to listen to her brother's music uh -huh. because he didn't have music in his own house. So <laughs> so he went over to listen to his friend's music. And this is, seems to be thematic in several of the couples we've covered re recently. Mildred uh -huh. didn't really care for Richard's personality at first uh -huh. um, because he was 
taciturn. Taciturn, yep. <laughs> she thought that he was arrogant. She didn't oh. particularly care for him much. Uh, but because it's a small town and all of her brothers, you know, he was friends there, they developed a friendship that eventually led to a romance. And in June 1958, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, when Mildred was 18, she uh-huh. got pregnant and the couple decided to get married. That's... They couldn't do that in <gasps> Virginia. I did. So they went to Washington, D.C., uh-huh. got married, and went back to Central Point. Right. Well, they received the local sheriff's office received an anonymous tip that the Lovings were in violation of the Virginia's Racial Integrity Act oh of 1924, God. one of 20 states that had laws against interracial marriage. So Sheriff Garnet Brooks and two deputies stormed into their bedroom at two o'clock in the morning on July 11th, 1958 hoping to find them having sex because interracial sex was also illegal in Virginia and they wanted the double charges. So apparently peeping Tom and (laughs) it's not. (laughs) No, it's peeping Sheriff Garnett Brooks Uh in this case. Uh (laughs) So, and when they demanded to know what Richard and Mildred were doing together and they pointed to their marriage certificate Uh on the wall and said, that's what we're doing together. And we're told in no uncertain terms, that's no good here. The night we were arrested, I guess it was about 2 a.m. And I saw this light, you know, and I woke up and it was the policeman standing beside the bed. And he told us to get up, that we was under arrest. And anyway, they carried us to Bowling Green and uh, locked us up. And in January, they had the trial. And they uh, told us to leave the state for 25 years. The official charge was cohabiting as man and wife against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. Oh my God. Which is so outrageous in retrospect for Uh so many reasons, not the least of which is personally, you'd find very few people more peaceful and dignified (laughs) than Richard Mildred Loving. Um, their one-year sentences were suspended, and but the plea bargain that they were forced to take ordered them to leave the state oh and not return Lord. together for 25 years. <gasps> they paid their court fees, relocated to Washington, D.C., had three children, Understood. and tried to start a life. But their whole world, right. you know, their family, their friends, they, everything they knew was wrapped up in a small rural town. Right. And, you know quiet peaceful agricultural background people mm-hmm. with deep roots in the community very difficult for you to move yeah, just, to a city like washington no, dc ki- even then that and was start making a you know mildred especially had a difficult time adapting because there was no room for her kids to play oh. and while they were there one of their kids was actually hit by a car <gasps> in the street he was okay oh. um trying to play and longing to see their family the lovings defied the court order multiple times right to return to virginia and visit people um but since they weren't allowed to be seen together and richard didn't really like talking to people that much anyway right. they they would go and he would usually just stay inside the house well, she went out and took care of their visiting, and if people wanted to see him, they came they by. They came by. Um, but they were determined to go back home together and good. for good. Good. So after living basically in exile for five years and having three kids, Mildred wrote to Bobby Kennedy, no. who was the United <laughs> States Attorney General at the time, and asked for counsel. Kennedy referred her to the ACLU. Yep. Uh, I think his first name was Bernard, but the uh, Cohen, the lawyer, said yes. <laughs> in an interview. Really I watched it. I'll show you the. Uh, in fact, I'll link the uh, interview with the attorneys uh, to the website. Uh, Cohen said that they were ex- 
extraordinarily naive. He was a little surprised because the, what they had asked him to do was basically, can you go talk to the judge and get him to change his mind? <laughs> You guys are all friends, lawyers, judges, you know. Yeah, you just, guys all talk to each other. Just Go tell chat him, with them. we're going to just live here. We won't cause any problems. Right. Just get him right. to change his mind. They, they just want to go home. They just wanted to go home. Oh. But since they'd already pled guilty right. to the charge, they right. couldn't. They, they had no, no Legal basis standing, for an appeal. Basically. Yeah. So their first attempt at justice was just to have the case vacated and the ruling reversed by the original judge, whose name was Leon Bazile. He waited a year to even reply, and when he did, this is what he said. Oh, this should be lovely. Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, melee, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with this arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court, even though Richard had told Life magazine that we have thought about other people, but we're not doing this just because somebody has to do it and we wanted to be the ones. Right. We're doing it for us. Yeah, we want to go home. Right. Mildred said, uh, if we do win, I know we'll be helping a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I know we have some enemies, but we have some friends too. So it really don't make no difference about my enemies. <laughs> I you just, go, Mildred. I just love her. So the Warren Court's nine judges unanimously ruled in favor of the Lovings, which really? struck Surprise. down the anti-miscegenation laws in all of the <gasps> other existing states. Yes. They all toppled immediately afterward. And that case has been used, at, was cited as precedent in the U.S. same-sex marriage cases since, including the 2015 Supreme Court decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, which, which legalized same-sex marriage. But for them, mm -hmm. it, yeah, was it wasn't more than just a Supreme that. Court decision. It was the <laughs> freedom to go, to go home, home and live the lives that they had tried to start living seven years wow. before all that happened. They built a house on an acre of land nice. that Richard's father had given to them nice. and refused nearly all interview requests after forever wow. and ever on Forever it. and ever, yeah. <laughs> With rare exceptions. Um, sadly, Richard was killed by a drunk driver in 1975. Oh, no. And Mildred, who was also in the car, lost the sight in her right eye. Oh. Her family became very protective of her. Yes. Because, of course, people you know, wanted to do the interviews and yep. get her take on things. Yep. Uh, but she avoided talking about the case almost entirely until she was 68. Mm -hmm. And in May 2008, she was asked for her thoughts on gay marriage. Uh -huh. well, this was a difficult thing for her because Mildred was deeply religious. Yes. Yes. And so she did what conscientious people do. She did a lot of soul searching. She talked to her church, neighbors, uh, talked to her children, and finally issued a statement. My generation was bitterly divided over something that should have been so clear and right. The majority believed what the judge said, that it was God's plan to keep people apart and that government should discriminate against people in love. But I have lived long enough now to see big changes. The older generation's fears and prejudices have given way, and today's young people realize that if someone loves someone, they have a right to marry. Surrounded as I am now by wonderful children and grandchildren, not a day goes by that I don't think of Richard and our love, our right to marry, and how much it meant to me to have that freedom to marry the person precious to me. 
I am still not a political person, but I am proud that Richards and my name is on a court case that can help reinforce the love, the commitment, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. Oh. So there's awesome. no doubt at all about Mildred and Richard's legacy of love and, no and why you know they can be held up as champions of the ideal. Um, and that's why there's an official celebration on July 12th called s- Loving Day. We are so going to start celebrating that. <laughs> that was the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, nice. Loving versus Virginia, that declared all the anti-miscegenation that. laws in the United States illegal. And I have heard about this. Theirs day. is a perfect example of the inevitable triumph of love over hate. Yay. Yay! And there was much rejoicing. The crowds went wild. Yay! (laughs) And from wild crowds (laughs) to something a little bit more intimate, a tale from Carmel Jones called The Night I Survived Dinner with His Parents. (laughs) Well, there'll be some tips involved here. (laughs) Uh, Definitely. Coming up next on Love in America. When there's love, love, love. Have you ever thought about all the things that wouldn't exist without you? Yes, actually, I have. Really? Yeah, especially our children. <laughs> yeah, well, your birthday party would be pretty meaningless. Yep, yep. Some people think the universe itself wouldn't exist if you weren't here to experience it. Oh, that's... But we know we wouldn't exist without you. And that's where you come in. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on Love in America, mm-hmm. you can support us at... Patreon.com slash Love in America. We need you. And you need us. And together, <laughs> we make the universe exist. This week, our Friends and Lovers narrative comes to you from Carmel Jones in a tale called The Night I Survived Dinner with His Parents. Windows down. I'm a black girl from Detroit who fell in love with a white Jewish boy from Philadelphia. I know, it sounds like it's straight out of a Bronx tale. Great movie, but it's my life, as cliche as it might appear. I met him at a mutual friend's party. It was Saturday night, a typical gathering of 20-somethings. The beer selection was Coors Light, Budweiser, and Modelo. Not gourmet exactly, but I liked it. Most people made snide remarks except one disheveled boy, bearded with a flannel shirt. Fit the part of a guy who would like cheap beer. He grabbed a Coors Light and seemed to enjoy it. Sounds like a small thing, but that got me interested. We caught eyes and went from there. Donnie and I dated for three months before the topic of meeting family came up. What do you think of meeting my parents? He asked so innocently. I froze. On the one hand, I didn't want to appear resistant to meeting his family. I really liked him, but was afraid of meeting his parents, worried about how they might react. I had heard horror stories from friends who dated interracially. The painful, silent dinners, the follow-up commentary drip-fed for weeks, already struggling with school and in a somewhat precarious emotional state, I didn't want to jeopardize myself. Baby, what do you think of holding off? 
we can, but why? Well, the obvious. What's your family going to think about you dating a black girl? Oh, babe, they already know. My stomach dropped. I thought to myself, I'm already the black girl. I knew it was one thing to be told your son is dating a black girl, but it is another thing to actually see his arms around her, to see him kiss her, to hear him say, I love you. Baby, are you sure it's the right time? Of course. They can't wait to meet you. Um, I'm afraid. Why? Because I'm not sure your parents are ready to see you with someone like me. I know I don't know them. They sound like wonderful people, but I've never dated a white guy, let alone sat down at a dinner table with a white family. And I'm not sure they've sat down at a dinner table with their son's black girlfriend. In fact, I bet they haven't. It'll be great, baby. Nothing to worry about. My mom's a great cook. Food. As much as I love to eat, it was the last thing I wanted to do when I first met his parents. I worried about everything from how I held my fork to what my culinary taste meant as far as cultural divides. What were we going to eat? What were we going to talk about? I brushed up on Jewish history. Should I draw a parallel between ancient Jews and black people in America? Too serious a conversation topic? I was nervous. We drove to his parents on Sunday night, a small suburb outside of Philadelphia. I remember rolling the windows up and down throughout the entire ride. I couldn't get comfortable. Music? Sure, I replied. No, wait, just talk about anything. We got to talking about the party we met at. Neither of us were planning to go. I only went because a good friend of mine pleaded with me. He only went because of the free beer. The universe can be pretty mysterious, I thought. We pulled into the driveway. No going back now. Do I fake sudden illness? Truth was, I did feel partially ill. The house was on a quiet cul-de-sac. A cobblestone path led us to the front door. A basketball hoop adorned the garage. This is a mezuzah. He explained, pointing to the small doorpost affixed diagonally. Not exactly sure what it means, but it's some kind of Jewish law. Yeah, inside is one of the main Jewish prayers. I'm not sure if he was impressed or shocked, but either way, his face nearly dropped to the floor. And for some reason, it gave me a bit of confidence. He rang the doorbell. Oh, they're here. I hear from inside. Can I do this? Hi, Donnie, his mother exclaimed as she wrapped her arms around him. You must be Carmel, she said, extending her arms out for a hug. I'm Suzanne, Donnie's mom. This is Stephen. I gazed into the future as Donnie's father approached. He looked exactly like Donnie with an extra 30 years. The physical resemblance abated my anxiety. Um, I'm Carmel. It's nice to meet you both. I brought some wine, I gestured, grabbing a wine bottle from my oversized purse. A couple of glasses of wine and a delicious main course later, the four of us were talking about my job as a social worker. I shared how I got started in the field, how I was inspired by a young social worker who helped my cousins when I was young. Even at a young age, I was moved by her selflessness and commitment to others. I didn't phrase it so sentimentally at the dinner table, but I got it across in a way that felt genuine. That's when Stephen put his fork down and turned to me. I knew he was an attorney, but I didn't know he was a public defender. I'm not one to judge people on political leanings, but the fact he made a career helping the disadvantaged made me feel safe in his home. 
That's not to say I wouldn't have enjoyed the company of an oil man, but his particular vocation comforted me. As we left, Stephen pulled me aside and thanked me for the work I do, explaining that there aren't enough social workers in this country. I thanked him for the recognition and insisted I wasn't anyone special. He smiled and gave me a hug. We're told not to prejudge situations, but experience can challenge that call. I've encountered different forms of prejudice since a young age, for being black, for being a woman. Accordingly, I approached meeting Donnie's parents apprehensively. But something funny happened. Within a few minutes of meeting his parents, I realized my apprehension was unwarranted. I realized that past experience informs you only so much that new experience is just that, new. It reveals new truths. It can assuage the past. The past does not have to be prologue. It wasn't that night. On the car ride home, I left the windows down and asked Donnie to put on some music. So thanks for joining us this week for the Love in America podcast. Love in America is produced by Scott and Tony Burns in the Crooked Little House in Deadwood, South Dakota. (laughs) To learn more, visit our website at loveinamerica.us. Love in America and Tales from the Heart of America are distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. (laughs) And we are looking forward to sharing the love with you next time on... Love in America. (laughs) Hey, there's more to that story. (laughs) There's always more to the story. (laughs) 